All right, welcome back everyone to Books for Boredom. Again, sorry, I love how last week I said that I would be putting the next set of chapters up next week and now it's been two. Um, so I'm just gonna say I'm a liar and don't listen to me ever because, well, listen to me about some things, but for some reason my schedule lately has been very strange. Um, but I don't plan on making that a habit, so hopefully you can believe me when I say next week will be our next set of chapters. It also will be our last set of chapters. We are done this book, I think. Oh wait, it might be two more after this. Well, yeah, I think it's two more. Never mind. Again, I'm a liar. Sorry. <laughs> I'm all over the place. Um, we Well, we're starting part three of the book. We finished part one and part two. We're on three and there's four. So, but I did split it up into three different sets. So, Maybe it'll change. Maybe I can um, get through all of these chapters in one go. Uh, this one that I'm reading for this week is a lot shorter than the others, so it may not even be a full hour, or if it is, it won't be at any longer than that. Um, so this is going to be part three, all the way up to chapter 33, the end, 34, technically. So. Um, we're getting to the very end, everyone. I hope, I mean, I don't know. I haven't really heard much feedback on this book from any, from you guys. Um, I'm assuming that you guys like it because, I mean, I, I can see, like, who's listening to it and how long they're listening to it. Um, but if it's not your thing, that's fine, totally. Uh, there's going to be times when I read books that no one really cares about. Um, it's kind of like a like a niche thing. Some people really don't like fantasy books. Some people really don't like classics. Some people don't like short stories. So there's going. That's the good thing about reading. There's always going to be something that you like, and you can always go and find something. So I'm sorry if this isn't anyone's really cup of tea, or some of yours. Um, we are almost done it, and then I'll be on to our next book. The next book I'll reveal now is a classic novel. So hopefully people who are in school are going to be reading this book, if you're in high school or if, you, if you're even reading it in college, um, it'll be one of those books that would definitely be on your reading list if you haven't already read it. So um, it's also my favorite classic book ever. I'm not going to say what it is until we get to, until we get to it, but just so you know, that way you know ahead of time if it's even going to be something you're interested in. It is a classic novel, so we'll leave it at that. Um, but yeah, I'm going to get into this next set of chapters and see what goes on with cats and poe and better blue see you guys next week part three the shifting world chapter 31 the inn sat in what passed for a clearing here in the south of sunder but would have been called a forest anywhere else there was space between oaks and maples for the inn, a stable, a barn, and a patch of garden, and enough open sky to allow sunlight to flicker down and reflect the surrounding trees in the windows of the building. The inn wasn't busy, though neither was it empty. Traffic through Sunder was always steady, even at winter's onset, even at the edge of the mountains. Cart horses labored northward, pulling barrels of Monsine cider, or the wood of Sunder's fine forests, or the ice of Sunder's eastern mountains. Merchants bore leonid tomatoes, grapes, apricots, leonid jewelry and ornaments, and fish found only in leonid seas, north from the Sunder and port cities, up into the Midlands, to Wester, Nander, and Estill. And southward from those same kingdoms came freshwater fish, grains and hay, corn, potatoes, carrots, all the things that people who live in the forests want. 
and herbs and apples and pears, and horses to be loaded onto ships and transported to Leonid and Monsi. A merchant stood now in the yard of the inn, beside a cart stacked high with barrels. He stamped his feet and blew into his hands. The barrels were unmarked and the merchant nondescript, his coat and boots plain, none of his six horses bearing a brand or ornamentation indicating from which kingdom they came. The innkeeper burst into the yard with his sons, gesturing to them and to the horses. He yelled something to the merchant and his breath froze in the air. The merchant called back, but not loudly enough to carry to the thick strand of trees outside the clearing, where Katza and Bitterblue crouched, watching. He's likely to be Monsian, Bitterblue whispered. Come up from the ports and making his way through Sunder. His cart's very full. If he'd come from one of the other kingdoms, wouldn't he have sold more of whatever he's carrying by now? Excepting Leonid, of course, but he doesn't have the look of a Leonid, does he? Cat's a rifle through her maps. It hardly matters. Even if we determine he's from Nander or Wester, we don't know who else is at that inn, or who else is likely to arrive. We can't risk it. Not until we know whether one of your father's stories had spread into Sunder. We were weeks in the mountains, child. We've no idea what these people have heard. The story may not have reached this far. We're some distance from the ports and the mountain pass, and this place is isolated. True, Katza said. But we don't want to provide them with a story either, just spread up to the mountain pass or down to the ports. The less Lek knows about where we've been, the better. But in that case, no inn will be safe. We'll have to get ourselves from here to Leonid without anyone seeing us. Katza examined her maps and didn't answer. Unless you're planning to kill everyone we see, Bitterblue grumbled. Oh, Katza, look, the girl's carrying eggs. Oh, I would kill for an egg. Katza glanced up to see the girl, bareheaded and shivering, scuttling from barn to inn with a basket of eggs hung over one arm. The innkeeper gestured to her and called out. The girl set the basket at the base of an enormous tree and hurried over to him. He and the merchant handed her bag after bag, and she slung them over her back and shoulders until Katza could barely see her anymore for the bags that covered her. She staggered into the inn. She came out again, and they loaded her down again. Katza counted the scattered trees that stood between their hiding place and the basket of eggs. She glanced at the frozen remains of the vegetable garden. Then she shuffled through the maps again and grabbed hold of the list of council contacts in Sunder. She flattened the page onto her lap. I know where we are, Katza said. There's a town not far from here, perhaps a two days walk. According to Raffin, a storekeeper there is friendly to the council. I think we might go there safely. Just because he's friendly to the council doesn't mean he'll be able to see through whatever story Lex sprouting. True, Katza said. But we need clothing and information, and you need a hot bath. If we could get to Leonid without encountering anyone, we would, but it's impossible. If we must trust someone, I'd prefer it to be a council sympathizer. Betterblue scowled. You need a hot bath just as much as I do. Katza grinned. I need a bath as much as you do. Mine doesn't have to be hot. I'm not going to stick you into some half-frozen pond to sicken and die after all you've survived. Now, child, Katza said as the merchant and the innkeeper shouldered bags of their own and headed for the inn's entrance. Don't move until I get back. Where? Bitterblue began, but Katza was already flying from tree to tree, hiding behind one massive trunk and then another, peeking out to watch the windows and doors of the inn. When moments later Katza and Bitterblue resumed their trek through the sunder and forest, Katza had four eggs inside her sleeve and a frozen pumpkin on her shoulder. Their dinner that night had the air of a celebration.
There wasn't much Katza could do about her appearance or bitter blues when it came time to knock on the storekeeper's door, other than clean the dirt and grime as best she could from their faces, manhandle bitter blues tangle of hair into some semblance of a braid, and wait until darkness fell. It was too cold to expect bitter blue to remove her patchwork or furs, and Katza's wolf hides, no matter how alarming, were less appalling than the stained, tattered coat they hid. The storekeeper was easily identified, his building the largest and busiest in the town save the inn. He was a man of average height and average build, had a sturdy, no-nonsense wife and an inordinate number of children who seemed to run the gamut from infancy to Katz's age and older, or so Katz gathered, as she and Bitterblue passed their time among the trees at the edge of the town waiting for night to fall. His store was sizable, and the brown house that rose above and behind it enormous, as it would have to be, Katza thought, to contain so many children. Katza wished, as the day progressed and more and more children issued from the building to feed the chickens, to help the merchants unload their goods, to play and fight and squabble in the yard, that this council contact had not taken his duty to procreate quite so seriously. They would have to wait not only until the town quieted, but until most of these children slept, if Katza wished their appearance on the doorstep to cause less than an uproar. When most of the houses were dark, and when light shone from only one of the windows in the storekeeper's home, Katza and Bitterblue crept from the trees. They passed through the yard and snuck to the back door. Katza wrapped her fist in her sleeve and thumped on the solid sunder and wood as quietly as she could and still hoped to be heard. After a moment, the light in the window shifted. After another moment, the door was pushed open a crack, and the storekeeper peered out at them, a candle in his hand. He looked them up and down, two slight, furry figures on his doorstep and kept a firm grip on the door handle. If it's food you want or beds, he said gruffly, you'll find the inn at the head of the road. Katz's first question was the most risky, and she steeled herself against the answer. It's information we seek. Have you heard any news of Monsi? Nothing for months. We hear little of Monsi in this corner of the woods. Katza released her breath. Hold your light to my face, storekeeper. The man grunted. He extended his arm through the crack in the door and held the candle to Katz's face. His eyes narrowed, then widened, and his entire manner changed. In an instant, he'd opened the door, shuffled them through, and thrown the latch behind them. Forgive me, my lady. He gestured to a table and began to pull out chairs. Please, please sit down. Marta, he called into an adjacent room. Food, he said to the confused woman who appeared in the doorway. And more light. And wake the- No, Katza said sharply. No, please, wake no one. No one must know we're here. Of course, my lady, the man said. You must forgive my- My- You weren't expecting us, Katza said. We understand. Indeed, the man said. We had heard what happened at King Rhonda's court, my lady, and we knew you'd pass through Sunder with the Leonid Prince. But somewhere along the way the rumors lost track of you. The woman came bustling back into the room and set a platter of bread and cheese on the table. A girl about Katz's age followed with mugs and a pitcher. A boy, a young man taller even than Raffin, brought up the rear and lit the torches in the walls around the table. Katza heard a soft sigh and glanced at Bitterblue. The child stared, wide-eyed and mouth-watering at the bread and cheese on the table before her. She caught Katza's eye. Bread, she whispered, and Katza couldn't help smiling. Eat, child, Katza said. By all means, young miss, the woman said. Eat as much as you like. Katza waited until everyone was seated and until Butterblue was contentedly stuffing her mouth with bread. Then she spoke. We need information, she said. We need counsel. We need baths and any clothing, preferably boys' clothing, you might be able to spare. Above all, we need utter secrecy regarding our presence in this town. 
We're at your service, my lady, the storekeeper said. We have enough clothing in this house to dress an army, his wife said, and any supplies you'll need in the store, and a horse, I warrant, if you're wanting one. You can be sure we'll keep quiet, my lady. We know what you've done with your counsel, and we'll do for you whatever we can. We thank you. What information do you seek, my lady? The storekeeper asked. We've heard very little from any of the kingdoms. Katz's eyes rested on Better Blue, and she tore into the bread and cheese like a wild thing. Slowly, child, she said absently. She rubbed her head and considered how much to tell the Sunderan family. Some things they needed to know, and certainly the one thing most likely to combat the influence of whatever deception Lex spread next was the truth. We come from Monsi, Katza said. We crossed the mountains through Grella's Pass. This was met with silence and a widening of eyes. Katza sighed. If that's hard for you to believe, she said, you'll find that the rest of our story is no less than incredible. Truly, I'm unsure where to start. Start with Lex Grace, Bitter Blue said around her mouth full of bread. Katza watched the child lick crumbs from her fingers. Bitter Blue looked as if she were approaching a state of rapture that even the story of her father's treachery couldn't disturb. Very well, Katza said. We'll start with Lex Grace. Katza took not one bath that night, but two. The first to loosen the dirt and peel off the top layer of grime, the second to become truly clean. Bitterblue did the same. The storekeeper, his wife, and his two eldest children moved quietly and efficiently, drawing water, heating water, emptying the tub and burning their old, tattered garments, producing new clothing, boys' clothing and fitting it to their guests, gathering hats, coats, scarves, and gloves from their own cabinets and from the store, cutting Bitterblue's hair to the length of a boy's, and trimming Katz's so it lay close to her scalp again. The sensation of cleanliness was astonishing. Katza couldn't count the number of times she heard Bitter Blue's quiet sigh. A sigh at being warm and clean, at washing oneself with soap, and at the taste of bread in one's mouth and the feeling of bread in one's stomach. I'm afraid we won't get much sleep tonight, child, Katza said. We must leave this house before the rest of the family wakes in the morning. And you think that bothers me? This evening has been bliss. The lack of sleep will be nothing. Nonetheless, when Katza and Bitter Blue lay down in a bed for the first time in a very long time, the bed of the storekeeper and his wife, though Katza had protested their sacrifice, Bitter Blue dropped into an exhausted sleep. Katza lay on her back and tried not to let the calm breath of her bed companion, the softness of mattress and pillow, delude her into believing they were safe. She thought of the gaps she'd left in the story she told that night. The family of the storekeeper now understood the horror that was King Lex Grace. They understood Ashen's murder and the events surrounding the kidnapping of Grandfather Tealiff. They had surmised, though Katza had never told them explicitly, that the child eating bread and cheese as if she'd never seen it before was the Monsian princess who fled her father. They even understood that if Lek chose to spread a false story through Sunder, their minds might lose the truth of everything she'd told them. All of this the family marveled at, accepted, and understood. Katza had omitted one truth and she had told one lie. The truth omitted was their destination. Lek might be able to confuse this family into admitting the lady and the princess had knocked on their door and slept under their roof, but he'd never be able to talk them into revealing a destination they didn't know. The lie told was that the Leonid prince was dead, killed by Lek's guards when he tried to murder the Monsian king. Katza supposed this lie was a waste of her breath. The opportunity for the family to speak of it would never arise, but when she could, she would make Poe out to be dead. The more people who thought him dead, the fewer people would think to seek him out and do him harm. To the Sunderin port cities they must go now. Ride south to sail west, 
but her thoughts as she lay beside the sleeping princess tended east, to a cabin beside a waterfall, and north to a workroom in a castle, and a figure bent over a book, a beaker, or a fire. How she wished she could take Better Blue north to Rhonda City and hide her there as they'd hidden her grandfather, north to Raffin's comfort, Raffin's patience and care. But even ignoring the complications of her own status at Rhonda's court, it was impossible. Unthinkable to hide the child in such an obvious place and so close to Lex's dominion. Unthinkable to take this crisis to those cats that held most dear. She would not entangle Raffin with a man who took away all reason and warped intention. She would not lead Lex to her friends. She would not involve her friends at all. She and the child would start tomorrow. They would ride the horse into the ground. They would find passage to Leonid, and she would hide the child. And then she would think. She closed her eyes and ordered herself to sleep. Chapter 32 Katz's first view of the sea was like her first view of the mountains, though mountains and sea were nothing like each other. The mountains were silent, and the sea was rushing noise, calm and rushing noise again. The mountains were high, and the sea was flatness, reaching so far into the distance she was surprised she couldn't see the lights of some faraway land twinkling back at her. They were nothing alike, but she couldn't stop staring at the sea, or breathing in the sea air, and thus how the mountains affected her. The cloth tied over her green eye limited her view. Katza itched to tear it off, but she dared not, when they'd make it this far. First through the outskirts of this city, and finally through the city streets themselves. They had moved only at night, and no one had recognized them, which was the same as saying she hadn't had to kill anyone. A scuffle here and there when thugs on a dark street had grown a little too curious about the two boys slipping southward toward the water at midnight, but never recognition, and never more trouble than Katza could handle without arousing suspicion. This was Suncliff, the largest of the Sundaran port cities and the one with the heaviest traffic and trade, a city that by night struck Katza as run-down and grim, crowded with narrow, seedy streets that seemed as if they should lead to a prison or a slum, and not to this astonishing expanse of water. Water stretching out, filling her, erasing any consciousness of the drunkards and thieves, the broken buildings and streets at her back. How will we find a Leonid ship? Bitterblue asked. Not just a Leonid ship, Katza said. A Leonid ship that hasn't recently been to Monsey. I could check around, Bitterblue said, while you hide. Absolutely not. Even if you weren't who you are, this place would be unsafe. Even if it weren't night. Even if you weren't so small. Bitterblue wrapped her arms tightly around herself and turned her back to the wind. I envy you your grace. Let's go, Katza said. We must find a ship tonight or we spend tomorrow hiding under the noses of thousands of people. Katza pulled the girl into the protection of her arm. They worked their way across the rocks to the streets and stairways that led down to the docks. The docks were eerie at night. The ships were black bodies as big as castles rising out of the sea, skeleton masts and flapping sails with voices of invisible men echoing down from the riggings. Each ship was its own little kingdom, with its own guards who stood, swords drawn, before the gangplank, and its own sailors who came and went from deck to dock or gathered around small fires or shores. Two boys moving among the ships, bundled against the cold and carrying a couple of worn bags, were far from noteworthy in this setting. They were runaways, or paupers, looking for work or passage. A familiar lilt in the conversation of one group of guards caught Katza's ear. Bitterblue turned to her, eyebrows raised. I hear it, Katza said. We'll keep walking, but remember that ship. Why not speak to them? 
There are four of them, and there are too many others nearby. If there's trouble, I'll never be able to keep it quiet. Katza wished suddenly for Poe, for his grace, so they might know if they were recognized and if it mattered. If Poe were here, he would know with a single question whether those Leonid guards were safe. Of course, if Poe were here, their difficulty of disguise would be multiplied manyfold. Between his eyes and the rings in his ears and his accent and even his manner of carrying himself, he would need to wear a sack over his head to avoid drawing attention. But perhaps the Leonid sailors would do anything their prince wished, despite what they'd heard. She felt his ring lying cold against the skin of her breast, the ring with the engravings that matched his arms. This ring was their ticket if any Leonid ship was to serve them willingly, and not in response to the threat of her grace or the weight of her purse, though she would capitulate to her grace or her purse if necessary. They slipped past a group of smaller ships whose guards seemed to be involved in some kind of boasting match between them, one group Western and another, Monsian, Bitter Blue whispered. And though Katza didn't change her gait, her senses sharpened and her whole body tingled with readiness until they'd left those ships behind and several more beyond them. They continued on, blending into the darkness. The sailor sat alone at the edge of a wooden walkway, his feet dangling over the water. The dock on which he sat led to a ship in an unusual state of activity the deck swarming with men and boys. Leonid men and boys for an ears and on fingers, in the light of their lanterns, Katza caught flashes of gold. She knew nothing of ships, but she thought this one must either have just arrived, or just departed. Do ships set out in the dead of night? she asked. I have no idea, Better Blue said. Quickly, if it's on its way out, all the better. And if that lone sailor gave them trouble, she could drop him into the water and trust the men rushing across the deck of the ship above not to notice his absence. Katza slipped up onto the walkway, better blew close behind. The man perceived them immediately. His hand went to his belt. Easy, sailor, Katza said, her voice low. We've only a few questions. The man said nothing and kept his hand at his belt, but he allowed the two figures to approach. As Katza sat beside him, he shifted and leaned away. For better leverage, she knew, in case he decided to use his knife. Bitter Blue sat next to Katza, hidden from the man by Katza's body. Katza thanked the Midlands for the darkness in their heavy coats, which hid her face and her form from this fellow. Where does your ship come from last, sailor? Katza asked. From Roar City, he answered in a voice little deeper than hers, and Katza knew him to be not a man, but a boy, broad and solid, but younger than she. You depart tonight? Yes. And where do you go? To Sunport and South Bay, Westport and Roar City again. Not to Monport? We have no trade with Monsey this time around. Have you heard any news of Monsey? It's clear enough we're a Leonid ship, isn't it? Find a Monsian ship if it's Monsian news you're wanting. What kind of man is your captain? Katz asked. And what do you carry? This is a good many questions, the boy said. You want news of Monsey and news of our captain. You want where we've been and what we're carrying. Is Mergen employing children to be his spies, then? I have no idea who Mergen employs to be his spies. We seek passage, Katza said. West. You're out of luck, the boy said. We don't need extra hands, and you don't look the type to pay. Oh? Graced with night vision, are you? I can see you well enough to know you for a pair of ragamuffins, the boy said, who've been fighting by the looks of that bandage on your eye. We can pay. The boy hesitated. Either you're lying or you're thieves. I'd wager both are true. Or neither. Katza reached for the purse in the pocket of her coat. 
The boy unsheathed his knife and jumped to his feet. Hold, sailor. I only reach for my purse, Katza said. You may take it from my pocket yourself if you wish. Go on, she said as he hesitated. I'll keep my hands in the air and my friend will stay away. Betterblue stood and backed up a few steps obligingly. Katza stood, her arms raised away from her body. The boy paused and then reached toward her pocket. As one hand fiddled to uncover the purse, the other held the knife just below Katza's throat. She thought she ought to appear nervous, yet another reason to be grateful for the darkness that made her face unreadable. Her purse finally in hand, the boy backed up a step or two. He opened it and shook a few gold pieces into his palm. He inspected the coins in the moonlight, and then in the firelight glimmering dimly from shore. This is Leonid Gold, he said. Not only are you thieves, but you're thieves who've stolen from Leonid men. Take us to your captain and let him decide whether to accept our gold. If you do so, a piece of it's yours, regardless of what he chooses. The boy considered the offer, and Katz awaited. Truly, it didn't matter if he agreed to their terms or not, for they wouldn't find a ship better suited to their purposes than this one. Katza would get them aboard one way or another, even if she had to clunk this boy on the head and drag him up to the gangplank, waving Poe's ring before the noses of the guards. All right, the boy said. He chose a coin from the pile in his palm and tucked it inside his coat. I'll take you to Captain Fawn for a piece of gold, but I warrant you'll find yourselves thrown into the brig for thievery. She won't believe you came upon this honestly, and we don't have time to report you to the authorities in the city. The word had not escaped Katza's attention. She? Your captain is a woman? A woman, the boy said. And graced. A woman and graced. Katza didn't know which should surprise her more. Is this a ship of the king, then? It's her ship. How? The graced and Leonid are free. The king doesn't own them. Yeah, she remembered that poet explained this. Are you coming, the boy said? Or are we going to stand here conversing? What is her grace? The boy stepped aside and waved them forward with his knife. Go on, he said. And so Katza and Bitterblue moved up the dock, but Katza listened for his answer. If this captain was a mind reader, or even a very competent fighter, she wanted to know before they reached the guard so she could decide whether to continue forward or shove this boy into the water and run. Ahead of them, the guards spoke to each other and laughed at some joke. One of them held a torch. The flame strained against the wind and flashed across their rough faces their broad chests, their unsheathed swords. Bitterblue gasped, ever so slightly, and Katza shifted her attention to the child. Bitterblue was frightened. Katza laid her hand on the girl's shoulder and squeezed. It'll be a swimming grace, she said idly to the boy behind them. Or some navigational ability, am I right? Her grace is the reason we leave in the middle of the night, the boy said. She sees storms before they hit. We set out now to beat a blizzard coming up from the east. A weather seer. The prescient graces were better than the mind-reading graces, better by far, but still they gave Katza a crawling feeling along her skin. Well, this captain's profession was well suited to her grace anyway, and it wasn't adverse to their purposes. Might even be advantageous. Katza would meet this Captain Fawn and measure her, then decide how much to tell her. The guards stared at them as they approached. One held the torch to their faces. Katza ducked her chin into the neck of her coat and stared back at him with her single visible eye. "'What's this you're bringing aboard, Jem?' the man asked. "'They go to the captain,' the boy said. "'Prisoners?' "'Prisoners or passengers. The captain will decide.' The guard gestured to one of his companions. "'Go with them, Bear,' he said. 
and make sure no danger befalls our young Jem. I can handle myself, Jem said. Of course you can. But Bear can handle yourself too, and himself and your two prisoners, and carry a sword and hold the light, all at the same time, and keep our captain safe. Jem might have been able to protest, but at the mention of the captain, he nodded. He took the lead as Katza and Bitterblue climbed up the gangplank. Bear fell in behind them, his sword swinging in one hand and a lantern raised in the other. He was one of the largest men Katza had ever seen. As they stepped onto the deck of the ship, sailors moved aside, partly to stare at the two small and bedraggled strangers and partly to get out of Bear's way. "'What's this, Jem?' voices asked. "'We go to the captain,' Jem responded, over and over. And the men fell away and went back to their duties. The deck was long and it was crowded with jostling men and with unfamiliar shapes that loomed to all sides of them and cast strange shadows against the light of Bear's lantern. A sail billowed down suddenly and released from its confinement in the riggings. It flapped over Katza's head, glowing a luminous gray, looking very much like an enormous bird trying to break its leash and take off into the sky, and then it rose again just as suddenly, folded and strapped back into place. Katza had no idea what it all meant, all this activity but felt a kind of excitement at the strangeness and the rush, the voices shouting commands she didn't recognize, the gustling wind, the pitching floor. It took her about two steps to adjust to the tilt and roll of the deck. Bitterblue was not so comfortable, and her balance wasn't helped by her constant alarm at the happenings around her. Katza finally took hold of the girl and held her close against her side. Bitterblue leaned into her, relieved, and relinquished to Katza the job of keeping her upright. Jem stopped at an opening in the deck floor. Follow me, he said. He clamped his knife between his teeth, stepped into the blackness of the opening, and disappeared. Katza followed, trusting the ladder she couldn't see to materialize beneath her hands and feet, pausing to help the child onto the rungs just above her. Bear climbed down last, his light casting their shadows against the walls of the narrow corridor in which they finally stood. They followed Jem's dark form down a hallway, Bitterblue leaned against Katza and turned her face against Katza's breast. Yes, the air was stuffy down here, and stale and unpleasant. Katza had heard that people got used to ships. Until Bitterblue got used to it, Katza would keep her standing and breathing. Jem led them past black doorways, toward a rectangle of orange light that Katza guessed opened to the quarters of the graced captain. The woman captain. Voices emanated from the lighting, and one of them was strong, commanding, and female. When they reached the doorway, the conversation stopped. From her place in the shadows behind the boy, Katza heard the woman's voice. "'What is it, Jem?' "'Begging your pardon, Captain,' Jem said. "'These two Sundaran boys wish to buy passage west, but I don't trust their gold.' "'And what's wrong with their gold?' the voice asked. "'It's lean at gold, Captain, and more of it than it seems to me they should have. "'Bring them in,' the voice said, "'and let me see this gold.' They followed Jem into a well-lit room that reminded Katza of one of Raffin's workrooms, always cluttered with open books, bottles of oddly colored liquids, herbs drying from hooks and strange experiments Katza didn't understand. Except here, the books were replaced by maps and charts, the bottles by instruments of copper and gold Katza didn't recognize, the herbs by ropes, cords, hooks, nets, items Katza knew belonged on ships but didn't know the purpose of any more than she knew the purpose of Raffin's experiments. A narrow bed stood in one corner, a chest at its floor. This, too, was like Raffin's workrooms, for sometimes he slept there, in a bed he'd installed for those nights when his mind was more on his work than his comfort. The captain stood before a table, a sailor almost as big as Bear at her side, 
a map spread out before them. She was a woman past childbearing years, her hair steel gray and pulled tightly into a knot at the nape of her neck, her clothing like that of the other sailors, brown trousers, brown coat, heavy boots, and a knife at her belt, her left eye pale gray and her right a blue as brilliant as Katza's blue eye, her face stern and her gaze as she turned to the two strangers, quick and piercing. Katza felt for the first time in this bright room with this woman's bright eyes flashing over them that their disguises had come to the end of their usefulness. Jem dropped Katza's coins into the captain's outstretched hand. There's plenty more of it too, Captain, in his purse. The captain considered the gold in her hand. She raised narrowed eyes to Katza in bitter blue. Where did you get this? We're friends of Prince Greening of Leonid, Katza said. It's his gold. The big sailor beside the captain snorted. Friends of Prince Poe, he said. Of course they are. If you've stolen from our prince, Jem began, but Captain Fawn held up a hand. She looked at Katza so hard that Katza felt as if the woman's gaze were scraping at the back of her skull. She looked at Katza's coat, at her belt, at her trousers, her boots, and Katza felt naked before the intelligence of those uneven eyes. You expect me to believe that Prince Poe gave a purse of gold to two raggedy Sundaran boys? The captain finally asked. I think you know we're not Sundaran boys, Katza said, reaching into the neck of her coat. He gave me this ring so you may know to trust us. She pulled the cord over her head. She held the ring out for the captain to see. She registered the woman's shocked expression and then the outraged cries of Jem and Bear alerted her to the room's sudden descent into Bedlam. They were lunging toward her, both of them. Jem brandishing his knife, Bear swinging his sword, and the sailor beside the captain had almost pulled a blade. Poe could have mentioned that at the sight of his ring his people devolved into madness, but she would act now and contemplate her annoyance later. She swirled bitter blue into the corner so that her own body was between the child and everyone else in the room. She turned back and blocked Jem's knife arm so hard that he cried out and dropped the blade to the floor. She knocked his feet out from under him, dodged the swing of Bear's sword, and swung her boot up to clock Bear on the head. By the time Bear's body had crumpled to the ground, Katza held Jem's own knife to his throat. Hooking her foot under Bear's sword and kicking it up into the air, she caught it with her free hand and held it out toward the remaining sailor, who stood just out of her range, knife drawn, ready to spring. The ring still dangled from its cord, gripped in the same hand that gripped the sword, and it was the ring that held the gaze of the captain. Stop, Katza said to the remaining sailor. I don't wish to harm you, and we are not thieves. Prince Poe would never give that ring to a Sundaran urchin, Jem gasped. And you do your Graceling Prince little honor, Katza said, digging her knee into his back, if you think a Sundaran urchin could have robbed him. All right, the captain said. That's more than enough. Drop the blades, lady, and release my man. If this other guy comes toward me, Katza said, pointing the sword at the remaining sailor, he'll end up sleeping beside Bear. Come back, Patch, the captain said to her man, and lower that knife. Do it, she said sharply when Patch hesitated. The expression he shot at Katza was ugly, but he obeyed. Katza dropped her blades to the floor. Jem stood, rubbed his neck, and focused a scowl in her direction. Katza thought of a few choice words she would like to say to Poe. She looped his ring back around her neck. What exactly have you done to Bear? The captain asked. He'll wake soon enough. He'd better. He will. And now you'll explain yourself, the captain said. The last we heard of our prince, he was in the Midlands, at the court of King Rhonda, training with you, if I'm not mistaken. A noise came from the corner. 
They turned to see Bitterblue on her knees, cuddled against the wall, vomiting onto the floor. Katza went to the girl and helped her to her feet. Bitterblue clung to her clumsily. The floor's moving. Yes, Katza said. You'll get used to it. When? When will I get used to it? Come, child. Katza practically carried Bitterblue back to the captain. Captain Fawn, she said. This is Princess Bitterblue of Monsi, Poe's cousin. As you've guessed, I'm Katza of the Midlands. I would also guess there's nothing wrong with that eye, the captain said. Katza pulled the cloth away from her green eye. She looked into the face of the captain who met her gaze coolly. She turned to Patch and Jem, who looked back at her, understanding now, eyebrows raised. So familiar in the features of their faces, their dark hair, the gold in their ears, the evenness with which they looked into her eyes. Katza turned back to the captain. The princess is in great danger, she said. I'm taking her to Leonid to hide her form from those who wish to harm her. Poe said you would help us when I showed you his ring, but if you won't, I'll do everything in the power of my grace to force your assistance. The captain stared at her, eyes narrowed and face hard to read. Let me see that ring more closely. Katza stepped forward. She couldn't remove the ring from its place around her neck again, not when the sight of it inspired such madness, but the captain didn't fear her, and she reached out to Katza's throat to take the gold circle in her fingers. She turned it this way and that in the light. She dropped the ring and narrowed her eyes at Bitterblue. She turned back to Katza. Where is our prince? she asked. Katza deliberately and decided that she must give this woman pieces, at least, of the truth. Some distance from here? Recovering from injury? Is he dying? No, Katza said, startled. Of course not. The captain peered at her and frowned. Then why did he give you his ring? I told you. He gave it to me so that a Leonid ship would help us. Nonsense. If that's all he wanted, then why didn't he give you the king's ring or the queen's? I don't know, Katza said. I don't know the meanings of the rings aside from which people they represent. This is the one he chose to give me. The captain humphed. Katza clenched her teeth and prepared herself to say something very caustic, but Bitterblue's voice stopped her. Poe did give the ring to Katza, she said miserably. Her voice was thick, her body hunched over itself. Poe meant for her to have it. And as he didn't explain what it meant, you should explain for him. Right now. The captain considered Bitterblue. Bitterblue raised her chin, grim and stubborn. The captain sighed. It's very rare for Elenid to give away one of his rings, and almost unheard of for him to give away the ring of his own identity. To give that ring is to forsake his own identity. Princess Bitterblue, your lady has around her neck the ring of the seventh Prince of Leonid. If Prince Poe had truly given her that ring, it would mean that he'd abdicated his princehood. He'd no longer be a Prince of Leonid. He'd make her a princess and give her his castle and his inheritance. Katza stared. She pulled out a chair and sat down hard. That can't be... Not one in a thousand Leonid gives that ring away, the captain said. Most wear it to their graves in the sea. B but occasionally, if a woman is dying and wants a sister to take her place as the mother of her children, or if a dying shopkeeper wants a shop to go to a friend, or if a prince is dying and wants to change the line of succession, a Leonid will make a gift of that ring. 
The captain turned to glare at Katza. The Leonid loved their princes, most especially the youngest prince, the Graceling prince. To steal Prince Poe's ring would be considered a terrible crime. But Katza was shaking her head from confusion that Poe should have done such a thing, and from fear of the word the captain kept saying over and over. Dying. Poe wasn't dying. I don't want it, she said. That he should give me this and not explain. Bitterblue leaned against the table, her face gray and moaned. Katza, don't worry, you can be sure he had some reason. But what reason would he have? His injuries weren't so bad. Katza, the child's voice was patient but tired. Think. He gave you the ring before he was injured. It wasn't such a strange thing for him to do, knowing he might die in the fight. Katza saw then what it meant, and her hand went to her throat. It was just like him. And now she was fighting back tears because it was just the sort of mad thing he would get in into his mind to do. Mad and foolish, far too kind and unnecessary, because he wasn't going to die. Why in the Midlands didn't he tell me? If he had, Bitterblue said, you wouldn't have taken it. You're right, I wouldn't have. Can you see me taking such a thing from him? Can you see me agreeing to such a thing? And he's right to have given it because he's going to die. Because I'm going to kill him when I see him next for doing such a thing and frightening me and not telling me what it meant. Of course you will, Bitterblue said, soothingly. It's not permanent, is it? Katza asked, turning to the captain. She then noticed for the first time that the captain was looking at her differently. So were Patch and Jem. Their faces white, and something shocked and quiet in their eyes. They believed her now, that she hadn't stolen the ring, and they believed that their prince had given it to her. And Katza was relieved that at least that part of this ordeal was behind them. I can give it back to him, she asked the captain. Can't I? The captain cleared her throat and nodded. Yes, lady princess. Great hills, Katza said, distressed. Don't call me that. You may give it back to him at any time, Lady Princess, the captain said, or give it to someone else, and he may reclaim it. In the meantime, your position entitles you to every power and authority held by a prince of Leonid. It's ours to do your bidding. I'll be content if you'll take us quickly to Post Castle on the western shore, Katza said, and stop calling me princess. It's your castle now, Lady Princess. Katza's temper was beginning to throw out sparks, for she wanted none of this treatment, but before she could argue, a man knocked on the doorframe. We're ready, Captain. Katza pulled Bitterblue to the side as the room erupted with commotion. The captain began to bark instructions. Patch, get back to your post and get us out of here. Jem, see to bear, and clean up that mess in the corner. I'm needed on deck, Lady Princess. Come above if you wish. Princess Bitterblue's seasickness will be less there. I've told you not to call me that, Katza said. The captain ignored her and marched to the doorway. Katza swept Bitterblue under her arm and followed her, glaring at the woman's back as they passed through the corridor. And then, in the blackness at the foot of the ladder, the captain stopped. She turned back to Katza. Lady Princess, she said. What you're doing here, and why you're disguised, and why the child princess is in danger, is your affair. I won't ask for an explanation. But if there's any assistance I can give... You need only to voice it. I'm at your service completely." Katza reached to her breast and touched the circle of gold. She was thankful, after all, for the power it gave her, 
if that power would help her to serve Better Blue. And that might be an explanation for Poe's gift as well. Perhaps he'd only wanted her to have full authority so that she might protect the child better. But she didn't want everyone on deck to see the ring if it inspired such adoration. She didn't want everyone talking about it and pointing it out and treating her this way. She loosened the neck of her coat and tucked the ring inside. Prince Poe is recovering from his injuries? Captain Fawn asked. And Katza heard the worry, the authentic worry, as if the captain were inquiring after a member of her own family. And Katza also heard the royal title, less easily dropped from Poe's name than added to her own. He's recovering, she said. And it occurred to her to wonder then if the Leonid would love their prince so much if they knew the truth of his grace. It was all too confusing. All that had happened since she'd come aboard this vessel, and too many parts of it hurt her heart. On deck, she led Bitterblue to the side of the ship. Together they breathed the sea air and watched the dark sparkle of the water. Chapter 33 What she really loved was to hang over the edge and watch the bow of the ship slice through the waves. She loved it especially when the waves were high and the ship rose and fell, or when it was snowing and the flakes stung her face. The men laughed and told each other that Princess Katza was a born sailor, to which Bitterblue added, once Bitterblue was well enough to come above deck and join in their banter, that Katza was born to do anything normal people might consider terrifying. What she really wanted was to climb into the highest riggings of the highest mast and hang down from the sky. And one clear day when Patch, who happened to be the first mate, sent a fellow named Red up to unravel a tangle of ropes, he told her to go along. You shouldn't encourage her, Bitterblue said to Patch, her hands on her hips and her face turned up to glare into his, her countenance fierce, for all that she was a fifth Patch's size. Lady Princess, I reckon she'll go up there eventually with or without my say-so, and I'd rather it be now while I'm watching than at night or during a squall. If you think sending her up there now will keep her from- Watch yourself, Patch said as the deck lurched and Bitterblue pitched forward. He caught her and lifted her into his arms. They watched Katza climb hand and foot up the mast behind Red, and when Katza finally looked down at them from her place in the sky, swinging so wildly back and forth that she marveled at Red's ability to untangle everything, she thought of how Bitterblue had trusted no man when they first met, and now the girl allowed this enormous sailor to pick her up and hold her, like a father, and the girl's arm was around Patch's neck, and she and Patch laughed up at Katza together. The captain predicted the journey would last four or five weeks, give or take. The ship moved fast, and most of the time they were alone on the ocean. Katza never climbed up into the riggings without straining her eyes behind them for some sign of pursuit, but no one was after them. It was a relief not to feel hunted, and not to feel as if one must hide. It was safe on the open sea, isolated with Captain Fawn and her crew, for not one sailor seemed to look upon them with suspicion, and she came gradually to trust that none had been touched by any rumors of Lek. We weren't even a day in Suncliff, the captain told her. You're lucky, Lady Princess. You have my grace to thank for it. And for our speed, Katza said. For it was a stormy winter at sea, and though they changed course so often their paths must look like some odd dance across the water, they managed to avoid the worst of it. Their progress west was steady. Katza had told the captain of Lex Grace and the reasons they fled in the first few days when Bitterblue had been very sick, and Katza had had nothing to do but care for the girl and think. She told the captain because it had occurred to her, with a sinking feeling, that the forty-some men aboard this ship knew exactly who she was, and Bitterblue were. 
and exactly where they were going. That made 40-some informants once Katza and Bitterblue were delivered to their destination and the ship returned to its trade route. I can vouch for the confidence of most of my men, Lady Princess, Captain Fawn said. Most, if not all. You don't understand, Katza said. Where King Leg is involved, I can't even vouch for my own confidence. It's not good enough for them to swear to say nothing to no one. If one of Lex's stories touches their ears, they'll forget their vows. What would you have me do then, Lady Princess? Katza hated to ask it, and so she stared at the charts on the table before them, pursed her lips, and waited for the captain to understand her. It didn't take long. You want us to remain at sea once we've left you and Leonid, the captain said, her voice sharp and growing sharper as she spoke. You want us to hold at sea, out of the way, all winter, longer, perhaps indefinitely, until you and Prince Poe, who aren't even in communication, have found some way to immobilize the King of Monsey. At which point I suppose we must wait for someone to come in search of us and invite us back ashore? What's left of us? Because we'll run out of supplies, Lady Princess. We're a trade vessel, you know, designed to sail from port to port and replenish our food and water at each stop. It's strained enough that we go now straight back to Leonid. Your cargo hold is full of the fruits and vegetables of your trade, Katza said, and your men know how to fish. We'll run out of water. Then ride your ship into a storm, Katza said. The captain's face was incredulous. Katza supposed it was an absurd suggestion, all of it absurd, for her to expect this ship to turn circles in some frozen corner of the sea, waiting for the approach of news that might never come, all for the safety of one young life. The captain made a noise part disbelief and part laughter, and Katza prepared for an argument. But the woman stared into her hands, thinking. And when she finally spoke, she surprised Katza. You ask a great deal, she said, but I can't pretend I don't understand why you ask it. Lek must be stopped, and not just for the sake of Princess Bitterblue. His grace is limitless, and a king with his proclivities is a danger to all seven kingdoms. If my crew avoids any contact with gossip and rumors, that's forty-three men and one woman whose minds are clear to the task at hand. And, she continued, I've promised to help you in any way I can. It was Katz's turn now to disbelieve. You'll really do this thing. Lady Princess, the captain said. It's not in my power to refuse anything you ask. But this thing I'll do willingly, for as long as I can without endangering my men and my ship and on the condition that I'll be reimbursed for my lost trade. That goes without saying. Nothing in business goes without saying, Lady Princess. And so they made an agreement. The captain would hold at sea in a place near to Leonid, a specific place just west of an uninhabited island she could describe, and another vessel could find, until such time as the other vessel came for her, or circumstances aboard her ship rendered it impossible for her isolation to continue. I have no idea what to tell my crew. The captain said. When the time comes for explanations, Katza said, tell them the truth. The captain asked Katza and Bitterblue one day, as they sat in the galley over a meal, how they'd gotten to Suncliff without being seen. We crossed the Monsian peaks into Sunder, Katza said, and traveled through the forest. When we reached the outskirts of Suncliff, we traveled only by night. How did you cross the mountain pass? Wasn't it guarded? We didn't cross at the mountain pass. We took Rella's pass. The captain peered at Katza over the cup she'd raised to her face. She set the cup down. I don't believe you. It's true. 
You crossed Grella's Pass and kept your fingers and toes, let alone your lives. I might believe it of you, Lady Princess, but I can't believe it of the child. Katza carried me, Bitter Blue said. And we had good weather, Katza added. The captain's laugh rang out. It's no use lying to me about the weather, Lady Princess. It snowed in Grella's Pass every day since summer, and there are few places in the Seven Kingdoms colder. Nonetheless, it could have been worse the day we crossed. The captain was still laughing. If I ever need a protector, Lady Princess, I hope to find you nearby. A day or two later, after Katza had come up from one of the frigid ocean baths she liked to take, the baths that Bitterblue considered further proof she was mad, she sat on Bitterblue's bunk and peeled away her soaking clothing. Their quarters were barely big enough for the two bunks they slept in, and badly lit by a lantern that swung from the ceiling. Bitterblue brought Katza a cloth to dry her wet skin and frozen hair. She reached out to touch Katza's shoulder. Katza looked down and saw, in the wavering light, the lines of white skin that had caught the girl's attention. The scars, where the claws of the mountain lion had torn her flesh. Lines on her breast, too. You've healed well, Bitterblue said. There's no question who won that fight. For all that, Katza said. We weren't evenly matched, and the cat had the advantage. On a different day, it would have killed me. I wish I had your skill, Bitterblue said. I'd like to be able to defend myself against anything. It wasn't the first time Bitterblue had said something like that, and it was only one of countless times Katza had remembered with a stab of panic that Bitterblue was wrong. That in her one and only encounter with Luck, Katza had been defenseless. Still, Bitterblue didn't have to be as defenseless as she was. When Patch teased her one day about the knife she wore sheathed at her belt, the same knife, big as her forearm, she'd carried since the day Katza and Poet found her in Lex Forest, Katza decided the time had come to make a threat of Bitterblue, or as much of a threat as the child could be. How absurd it was that in all seven kingdoms, the weakest and most vulnerable of people, girls, women, went unarmed and were taught nothing of fighting, while the strong were trained to the highest reaches of their skill. And so Katza began to teach the girl, First, to feel comfortable with a knife in her hand, to hold it properly so that it wouldn't slip from her fingers, to carry it easily as if it were a natural extension of her arm. This first lesson gave the child more trouble than Katza had anticipated. The knife was heavy. It was also sharp. It made Bitterblue nervous to carry an open blade across a floor that lurched and dipped. She held the hilt much too tightly, so tightly her arm ached and blisters formed on her palm. You fear your own knife, Katza said. I'm afraid of falling on it, Bitterblue said, or hurting someone with it by accident. That's natural enough, but you're just as likely to lose control of it if you're holding it too tightly as too loosely. Loosen your grip, child. It won't fall from your fingers if you hold it as I've taught you. And so the child would relax the hand that held the knife until the floor tipped again or one of the sailors came near, and then she would forget what Katza had said and grip the blade again with all her strength. Katza changed tactics. She put an end to official lessons and instead had Bitterblue walk around the ship with the knife in her hand all afternoon for several days. Knife in hand, the child visited the sailors who were her friends, climbed the ladder between decks, ate meals in the galley, and craned her neck to watch Katza scrambling around in the riggings. At first she sighed often and passed the knife heavily from one hand to the other, but then, after a day or two, it seemed not to bother her so much. A few days more and the knife swung loosely at her side, not forgotten for Katza could see the care she took with the blade when the floor rocked, or when a friend was near, but comfortable in her hand. Familiar. And now, finally, it was time for the girl to learn how to use the weapon she held. 
The next few lessons progressed slowly. Bitterblue was persistent and ferociously determined, but her muscles were untrained, unused to the motions Katza now expected of her. Katza was hard-pressed sometimes to know what to teach her. There was some use in teaching the child to block or deliver blows in the traditional sense. Some, but not much. She would never last long in a battle if she tried to fight by the usual rules. What you must do, Katza told her, is inflict as much pain as possible and watch for an opening. And ignore your own pain, Jem said, as best you can. Jem helped with the lessons, as did Bear, and any other of the sailors who could find the time. Some days the lessons served as mealtime distractions for the men in the galley, or on fine days as diversions in the corner of the deck. The sailors didn't all understand why a young girl should be learning to fight, but none of them laughed at her efforts, even when the methods Katz encouraged her to use were as undignified as biting, scratching, and hair-pulling. You don't need to be strong to drive your thumbs into a man's eyeballs, Katza said, but it does a lot of damage. That's disgusting, Betterblue said. Someone your size doesn't have the luxury of fighting cleanly, Betterblue. I'm not saying I won't do it. I'm only saying it's disgusting. Katza tried to hide her smile. Yes, well, I suppose it is disgusting. She showed Betterblue all of the soft places to stab a man if she wanted to kill him. Throat, neck, stomach, eyes the easy places that require less force. She taught Bitterblue to hide a small knife in her boot and how to whip it out quickly, how to drive a knife with both hands and how to hold one in either hand, how to keep from dropping a knife in the bedlam of an attack when everything was happening so fast your mind couldn't keep up. That's the way to do it, Red called out one day when Bitterblue had elbowed Bear successfully in the groin and bent him over double, groaning. And now that he's distracted, Katza said, what will you do? Stab him in the neck with my knife, Bitterblue said. Good girl. She's a plucky little thing, Red said approvingly. She was a plucky little thing. So little. So completely little that Katza knew, as every one of these sailors must know, how much luck she would need if she were to defend herself from an attacker. But what she was learning would give her a fighting chance. The confidence she was gaining would also help. These men, these sailors who stood on the side shouting their encouragement, they helped too more than they could know. Of course, she'll never need these skills, Red added. A princess of Monsi will always have bodyguards. Katza didn't say the first words that came to her mind. It seems better to me for a child to have these skills and never use them than not have them and one day need them, she said. I can't deny that, Lady Princess. No one would know that better than you, or Prince Poe. I imagine the two of you could whip a whole troop of children into a decent army. A vision of Poe, dizzy and unsteady on his feet flashed into her mind. She pushed it away. She went to check on Bear and focused her thoughts on Bitterblue's next drill. Chapter 34 Katza was in the riggings with Red when she first saw Leonid. It was just how Poe had described it, and it was unreal, like something out of a tapestry or a song. Dark cliffs rose from the sea, snow-covered fields atop them, rising from the fields a pillar of rock, and atop the rock a city, gleaming so bright that at first Katza was sure it was made of gold. As the ship drew closer, she saw that she wasn't so wrong. The buildings of the city were brown sandstone, yellow marble, and white quartz that sparkled with the light from sky and water, and the domes and turrets of the structures that rose above the others and sprawled across the skyline were, in fact, gold. Rora's castle and Poe's childhood home, so big and so bright that Katza hung from the riggings with her mouth hanging open. Red laughed at her and yelled down to Patch that one thing at least stilled the Lady Princess's climbing and scrambling. 
Land ho, he called then, and men up and down the deck cheered. Red slithered down, but Katza stayed in the rakings and watched Roar City grow closer before her. She could mark out the road that spiraled from the base of the pillar up to the city and the platforms, too, rising from fields to city on ropes too thin for her eyes to discern. When the ship skirted the southeast edge of Leonid and headed north, she swung around and kept the city in her sight until it disappeared. It hurt her eyes, almost. Roar City. And it didn't surprise her that Poe should come from a place that shone. Or a land so dramatically beautiful. The ship wound around the island kingdom, north and then west, and Katz barely blinked. She saw beaches white with sand and sometimes with snow, mountains disappearing into storm clouds, towns of stone built into stone and hanging, camouflage, above the sea, trees on a cliff, stark and leafless, black against a winter sky. Poe trees, Patch said to her when she pointed them out. Did our prince tell you? The leaves turned silver and gold in the fall. They were beautiful two months ago. They're beautiful now. I suppose, but Leonid is gray in the winter. The other seasons are an explosion of color. You'll see, Lady Princess. Katza glanced at him in surprise and then wondered why she should be surprised. She would see if she stayed here long enough, and likely she'd be here some time. Her plans once they reached Post Castle were vague. She would explore the building, learn its hiding places and fortify it. She would set a guard with whatever staff she found there. She would think and plan and wait to hear something of Poe or Lek. And just as she fortified the castle, she would fortify her mind against any news she heard that might carry the poison of his lies. I know what you've asked us to do, Lady Princess, Patch said beside her. This time she looked at him with true surprise. He watched the passing trees, his face grave. Captain Fawn told me, he said. She's told a few of us, a very few. She wants a number of us on her side when the time comes to tell the rest. And are you on her side then? Katza asked. She brought me to her side eventually. I'm glad, Katza said. And I'm sorry. It isn't your doing, Lady Katza. It's the doing of the monster who's the king of Monsi. A light snow began to fall. Katza reached her hand out to meet it. What do you think is wrong with him? Patch asked. Katza caught a snowflake in the middle of her palm. What do you mean, wrong with him? Well, why does it pleasure him to hurt people? Katza shrugged. His grace makes it so easy. But everyone has some kind of power to hurt people, Patch said. It doesn't mean they do. I don't know, Katza said, thinking of Rhonda and Mergen and the other kings and their senseless acts. It seems to me that a fair number of people are happy to be as cruel as their power allows. And no one's more powerful than Lek. I don't know why he does it. I only know we need to stop it. Do you think Lek knows where you are, Lady Princess? Katza watched flakes melting into the sea. She sighed. We crossed paths with a very few people, she said. Once we left Monsi. And we told no one our destination until we boarded the ship, but... He saw both of us, Patch. Both me and Poe, and of course he recognized us. There are only a few places we could hide the child. He'll look for her here eventually. I must find a place to hide in the castle or on the lands or even someplace in the Leonid wilderness. The weather will be harsh, Lady Princess, until spring. Yes, well, I may not be able to keep her comfortable, but I will keep her safe. Poet said his castle was small, more akin to a large house than a castle, 
but after seeing the way Roar's castle filled the sky, Katza wondered if Poe's scale of measure might differ from other people's. Rhonda's castle was large. Roar's was gargantuan. Where Poe's fit was yet to be seen. When she finally did see his castle, she was pleased. It was small, or at least it seemed it from her position in the riggings of the ship far below. It was simply built of whitewashed stone, the balconies and the window frames painted a blue to match the sky, and only a single square tower rising somewhere from the back to suggest it was more than a house. Its position, of course, was far from simple, and its position pleased Katza even more than its simplicity. A cliff reached up and out from the water, and the castle balanced at the cliff's very edge. It looked as if it might tumble forward at any moment, as if the wind might find purchase in some crack in the foundations and tip the castle, creaking and screaming over the drop and into the sea. She could understand why the balconies were dangerous in winter. Some of them hung over empty space. Below the castle, the sea threw itself against the base of the cliff. But there was one nook in the rock, one small inlet where water broke and foamed onto sand. A tiny beach, and a stairway leading up from the beach rising against the side of the cliff, turning back on itself, disappearing occasionally, and climbing finally up the side of the castle and onto one of those dizzying balconies. Where do we dock? she asked the captain when she'd scrambled down to the deck. There's a bay on the other side of this rise of rock, some distance beyond the beach. We'll dock there. A path leads up from the bay and away from the castle. You'll think you're going the wrong way, Lady Princess, but then it loops back and takes you up a great hill to the castle's front. There may be snow, but the path is kept clear in case the prince returns. You speak as if you knew it well. I captained a smaller ship a few years back, Lady Princess. A supply ship. The castles of Leonid are all beautifully situated, but believe me when I tell you they're none of them easy to supply. It's a steep path to the door. How large a staff does it keep? I'd expect very few people, Lady Princess. And I'll remind you that it's your castle at the moment, and your servants though you continue to refer to them as his. Yes, this she knew, and it was one of the reasons she wasn't looking forward to her first encounter with the inhabitants of the castle. The appearance of Lady Katza of the Midlands, renowned Graceling thug, in possession of Poe's ring, the absurd, tragic story she had to tell about Lek and Ashen, and her subsequent intentions to turn the castle into a fortress and cut off contact with the outside world. Katza had a feeling it would not go smoothly. The path was just as Captain Fawn had described, and the hill steep and ridged with drifts of snow, but the greater problem was bitter blue sea legs. She walked on land almost as clumsily as she'd walked at first at sea, and Katza held her up as they climbed toward Poe's front door. The wind gusted from behind so that it felt as if they were being blown up the hill. The castle wasn't much more castle-like from this angle. It seemed a tall white house at the top of a slope with a number of massive trees overshadowing a courtyard that would be pleasant in better weather a great tower rising behind the trees. Tall windows, high roofs, at least one widow's walk, stables to one side and a frozen garden to the other, and no indication as long as one's ears didn't catch the crash of waves that behind it all was a drop to the sea. They reached the top of the hill. A gust of wind pushed them onto the colorful tiled surface of the courtyard. Bitter blue side, relieved to enter flat land. They approached the house and Katza raised her fist to pose great wooden door, before she could knock, the door swung open and a rush of warmth hit her face. A landed man stood before her, oldish, dressed like a servant in a long brown coat. Greetings, he said. Please come into the receiving room, quickly, the man said, as Katza stood unmoving, startled by his hasty reception. We're letting the heat escape. The man ushered them into a dark hall. At first glance, Katza saw high ceilings, a stairway leading to banisters 
passageways above and at least three burning fireplaces. Bitterblue steadied herself on Katza's arm. I'm Lady Katza of the Midlands, Katza began, but the man waved them forward toward a set of double doors. This way, he said. My master's expecting you. Katza's jaw went slack with surprise. She stared at the man, incredulous. Your master? Do you mean he's here? How is that possible? Where is he? Please, my lady, the servant said. Come this way. The whole family's in the receiving room. The whole family? The man swept his hand toward the door straight ahead. Katza looked at Bitterblue and knew that the girl's astonished face must mirror her own. Certainly there had been time for Poe to make his way home. Katza and Bitterblue had been ages in the mountains, but how could he in such health? And how leave his hiding place without being seen? Why? The man shooed them forward to the doors, and Katza tried to formulate a question. Any question. How long has the prince been here? She asked. The princes have only just arrived, the man said. And before she could ask what he meant, he opened the doors. How wonderful, a voice inside said. Welcome, my friends. Come in and take your honored place among our happy circle. It was a familiar voice, and she caught Bitterblue and held the girl to her side when the child gasped and fell. Katza looked up to see strangers sitting around the walls of a long room, and at the room's end, smiling and appraising them through a single eye. King Lek of Monsey. As they stepped onto the deck of the ship, sailors moved aside, partly to stare at the two small and bedraggled strangers and partly to get out of Bear's way. 